right, Cross Connection, let's jump right into Esther chapter 9. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, as we explore your word today, as we uh, seek to pull out what you would have for us, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in how we study, Lord, that we would rightly divide your word, that we would rightly apply your word, and ultimately, Lord Jesus, that we would become closer to you and more like you. So be glorified as your people spend time in your word. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Like I mentioned, we're going to be in Esther chapter 9. Now, the thing with Esther chapter 9 is it comes right after 8, which is right after 7, which is right after 6, and so on and so forth, all the way back to Esther chapter 1. So what we see here in chapter 9 is kind of the culmination of the book. We see all the things that have gone forward. They've all led up to this point. So all of the, the drama, all of the intrigue, all of the heartache, all those things are kind of wrapping up here in chapter 9. So chapter 9 starts out saying, The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On that day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overthrow them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Asuherah's provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them, for fear of them fell on every nationality. Now the king's command and law that it's talking about here in, ch in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, is the law that was passed, or the law that was created by the king, however you choose to look at it, um, that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. Because remember, all the way back in chapter 3, that's when Haman convinced Ahasuerus uh, to allow them to wipe out the Jews. So then they passed another law in chapter 8, where it says, no, the Jews have the right to defend themselves. And on this day, the day that Haman chose for the Jews to be attacked, the Jews instead, it says just the opposite happened. The Jews were the ones then that were able to defend themselves and wipe out their enemies. God has orchestrated here a complete reversal from what, what was intended originally. In verse 3, it says, All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, the royal civil administrators, they all aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai, for Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. See, Mordecai goes from being marked for death and standing on deadly ground to proving that when you follow God, you are very hard to kill. Now he's powerful. His fame is growing because he honored God in his work and in his family. See, Mordecai's prior actions have become his greatest defense now and the key to building trust and finding favor with the people around him. If you remember early on in the book of Esther, Mordecai is the one who overhears the plot to kill the king and he tells Esther and Esther tells the king and then later on when Haman is seeking to honor himself and thinking, oh man, this is going to be great, God put it on King Ahasuerus' heart to remember who was it that saved my life? That was Mordecai. And so all the honor that Haman thought was going to go to him instead went to Mordecai because Mordecai did what he was supposed to do. See, his prior actions have become his greatest defense. And that's allowed him to build trust and find favor with all the people that have served around him. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. So don't get tired of doing the right thing. 
when it feels unnoticed, or even worse, when it feels like the things that you are doing, that God has called you to do, are causing others to attack you, don't stop doing what God's called you to do, because he's instructed you to do that in his word. Trust the process, and trust that God will be true to his word. Remember Mordecai. It seemed hopeless throughout the book of Esther for Mordecai, for the Jews, but God came through for them and he'll do the same thing for us if we trust him, trust the process and do what he's called us to do. Like it says in Galatians, we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. So don't give up. Verse five, the Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Remember that phrase, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, verse 6, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including, here go some rough names, we're going to try to pronounce these correctly, Parshandatha, Dolphon, Aspatha, Portha, Adalia, Aradatha, Pashmata, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha. They killed these 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. Now, they did not seize any plunder. That phrase, that shows up three separate times throughout this chapter for a reason. See, in chapter 3, the edict Haman authored instructed the enemies of the Jews to kill them and to plunder their possessions. So kill them and take all their stuff. Then in chapter 8... The Jews were given permission in the edict that the king passed to take possession of those that they killed. They were allowed to take their stuff. But it says three times, starting here in verse 10, they did not seize any plunder. Now, when you tag that with the phrase in verse 5, they did what they pleased to those who hated them, we see that they did what they pleased and they did not please to plunder their enemy. So it's very interesting. Why not seize their possessions? I mean, after all, that's what Haman was planning. That's what the king thought would be a, you know, the appropriate thing to do. Kill them and take their stuff. That's what we do. But you see, God's definition of a win looks very different from our definition of a win. God's definition of a win here is not to seize their possessions, not indulge the greed, not, don't give people a reason to say, oh, they were just doing this to, to, to get rich. They didn't touch the stuff. See, plenty of times... We have a hard time even discerning what a win is in certain situations as we follow Christ. Um, this is where we get to what I call a totem pole perspective. And the way this works is depending on how high up you are on the totem pole, whether it's life or business or whatever else, you have a different perspective. When you are low on the totem pole, your perspective is very limited and the concerns are things that are very close to you. The higher up you get on the totem pole, the wider your view is and the more concerns you have to balance and the more different factors that come into play. Um, I have a great ex example of this in my own life, albeit slightly painful to share. Um, there was a time roughly, I want to say, I didn't go back and look for the email because it's a little bit embarrassing to look at, but I think it's close to 20 years ago that, well, probably 15 years ago, to be more honest, probably around 15 years ago, we had an elders meeting, and in the elders meeting, the topic of buses for camp came up. Now, camp buses are expensive, but in youth ministry, camp is super important. Camp is where you spend you have as much time to spend with the youth 
in camp as you do the whole rest of the year. So it's like getting double the amount of time with the kids all compressed into one short period, usually of about five days. So camp in youth ministry is super, super important. And from the ministry totem pole height of youth ministry, it is like one of the most important things. It's one of the most important events that we put on. Well, when the buses are expensive. So when it came up and they're like, yeah, we don't have the, mo the money for the buses. We're not going to do camp buses. I have to figure out another way. And so being young in the ministry and not having attained a certain level of wisdom, I'm not saying I have arrived there yet, but I have more than when I started. Um, in that position of only seeing my thing, only seeing what I could see from my level of the totem pole, I got upset. I started firing off an email and I said, all right, gentlemen, well, since none of you guys want to help pay, want the church to pay for the buses, maybe I, then I guess I'm sure I can count on you to be drivers for camp. And it was very snarky and it was very snotty and it's embarrassing and painful to think of. And um, so I fired that off. And I got a response from my pastor and he said, that probably could have been handled differently, which yes, it could have been handled very differently. You see, the problem was what seemed super important to me from where I was on, my, on the totem pole was not as important once you had a wider view of things. When you're higher up on the totem pole, you have a wider view and there's a lot more factors involved. Youth camp is vitally important when you're in youth ministry. As you widen out, it's still important, but there's a lot of important things. And the further out that your, your responsibility and your outlook and your planning and all those things come into play, the further out that is, there's a lot of important things and it's not just that one thing. So we have to be careful from our perspective what we may consider the most important thing might not be the most important thing. We need to acknowledge that the higher up on the totem pole, the wider the perspective is. Now, keep in mind that the top of the totem pole is God. And this is what he says about it. He says in Isaiah chapter uh, 8, verse 9, he says, For my thoughts, they're not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we have this from the Lord where he says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts and my ways are so much higher than yours that you can't even conceptualize what those things are. The view from his place on the totem pole encompasses everything. Ours is so limited. We need to be very careful about making decisions about what's important to God from our limited perspective. So with that in mind, how do we figure out what it looks like to win from God's perspective? Well, here's a couple of thoughts that I've assembled for us today. First big thought, we have to know what game we're playing. We have to understand the game that we're playing. Like Paul I'm going to use a lot of sports metaphors through this because it helps me to understand. Hopefully it helps you to understand a little bit. And if you hate sports metaphors, I'm sorry. Maybe go back and watch the last chapter. But that's what we're talking about right now. So we have to know, first of all, what game it is that we're playing. See, chess and checkers are both played on the same board. But everything is different other than the board. In our world, it can seem like we're all playing the same game, but God's game is different from the one that the world is playing. If we don't know what game it is we're playing, we don't know the rules, we don't know the scoring, we don't know anything. 
In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, it says, When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? And that's the question. Are you with us, God, or are you with our enemies? And he said, Neither. He replied, I have now come as a commander to the Lord's army. See, God is on his side. And he calls us to join his team with his goals and not try to recruit him to our team. And that's an important perspective to keep because our team, my team, has my goals. But if I'm joining God's team, I then look at his rules. I look at his goals. So once we know the game, and the game is God's game, we have to know the rules of that game. When, uh, when my kids were younger and my boys were younger and they, were, you know, they loved playing football and they'd get together with friends and play football. And invariably, when you would have a pass and the pass was broken up, the receiver would call, pass interference, man, P.I., P.I., pass interference, throw the flag on that. Now, the defender was like, no way, that was clean, always. Um, so there's always going to be an argument about the rules sometimes. And, but the thing is, it's super important that we know the rules and that we follow the rules. Another painful Jason story moment. All right. So I'm in sixth grade. This is a true story, by the way. And if you're going to ask me later, was that really true? Yes, this is really true and embarrassing. So there I was, sixth grade, track meet. I am running the third leg of our four by 100 meter. Now, it's kind of interesting because the third leg is most of the time reserved for the slowest runner. And when I found that out much later on, I was like, hey, wait a minute, I'm the slow guy? So anyway, I didn't realize that at the time. But there we are, we're running the four by 100 meter relay. So I'm going, I'm set, and the first leg goes, and the second leg goes, and the second leg, they pass me off the baton, and I start running, and oh, I feel good. And I start running, and my head goes back, and I am just dialed in, and I am breathing well, and I am running, and I am flying. Pass it off to our anchor leg. They fly down. They cross the tape. We're first. We win. Uh-oh. The word comes down that we're disqualified because while I was all excited with my head up and whoo, things are going great, I had left my lane. Only for a step or two, but that's all it took. And that disqualified not just me, but it disqualified our whole team. So instead of meddling, we were disqualified. And man, that was, I think, the last track event in my short and illustrious <laughs> career as a track athlete. That was heartbreaking. It was embarrassing. If we don't know the rules, if we don't follow the rules, bad things happen. You look at Samson, you look at Saul, you look at David, all guys who knew the rules and at various different points in their lives chose to completely disregard them. And it didn't just affect them. It affected everybody around them. See, God gives us a playbook. He gives us his word. It's our responsibility to learn it and to use it. The Bible tells us exactly what we need to know to honor God, to follow him, and to do what he's called us to do. It's, it's our playbook, and God's given it to us. Well, some of you guys will know this name, Jamarcus Russell. Jamarcus Russell was the number one pick in the NFL draft. He was picked as a quarterback by the Oakland Raiders. And man, oh man, they were excited for him. He had massive arm strength. His workout was great. His eyesight test was great. Everything looked so good. 
But most people have no idea who Jamarcus Russell is because he's now considered one of the biggest busts in NFL history. And most of the blame falls on him for his career issues. Coaches, his coaches did not think that he was studying tape because you always have, you give them tape and you watch the opponent's team so you know what to expect. You get in your playbook, you get in your tape, you know, okay, this is how they normally attack, so I have to be ready for this. They suspected that he wasn't watching the game tape from his performance. So they gave him game tape to watch, and the next day he came in and he said, yeah, yeah, I watched their blitz, their blitz packages, so I'm ready for it. But the tapes they had given, them, given him were blank. So his lie was completely exposed before his coaches, embarrassing. Ah. If we take the time to study the information that God has given to us, we don't have to be embarrassed by our ignorance. We might still fall short in how we perform, how we play, but it never should be because we didn't even bother to read the playbook. God lays out in his word all that we need for life and godliness. And if we spend the time in there, we'll be prepared. Sometimes we'll fail. I'm okay with failing. What I'm not okay with is not trying my best. I don't want to be the, the person that phones it in. I don't think you want to be that person either, where it's like, eh, I don't really care that much. Following Jesus is tough, but it's way better if we get the information that God's laid out for us. So, the big point there, we got to know the rules of the game. And also, we have to understand, in the life of a Christian, next big thought here, we have to understand that the plays and the strategy will change in our lives as God works out his victory. Just because God put you in a position at one point doesn't mean you will always be in that position. It wasn't very long ago that I was out in the parking lot doing parking lot security, which, by the way, if you ever get a chance, parking lot security is some of the greatest stuff in the world. It's not as much fun now because we don't have an evening service. Evening services, they were pretty wild. But it's so vital. And you'll have opportunities to glorify God. And it doesn't involve a huge, tremendous amount of interaction with humans. So if you <laughs> prefer to be a little bit you know, on the down low, if you're that kind of person, it's a great, great place to be. I fondly remember my years in parking lot ministry. But I'm not there anymore because God has moved me to different places. We need to be in constant touch with our coach, with our heavenly coach, to ensure that we're getting accurate direction. Because we don't want to be in a position that we're not supposed to be in when God has called us to do something else. It's like if you're making a recipe and you get stuck on the step that says add salt. If that's all you ever do is add salt, you're making terrible cookies that no one's going to enjoy. We have to be willing to move as God directs us. Now, sometimes those moves are going to feel terrible. Sometimes those moves are going to be scary. Sometimes they're going to be fantastic and we're going to love it. But we have to understand that when God moves us, when God puts us in a certain place, when God gives a certain direction, he does that because he has that perspective. He has that plan. He has that understanding of what's best for us and what's best for his plan overall. And he chooses to use us to accomplish his ends. So we have to be ready. A receiver that always runs the same route, they only know one route and that's all they run, they're never going to get passed to. And they're probably never even going to play. See, football players have huddles. Baseball players have signals, you know, where they're 
sending them off to each other. Christians have the word of God and the example of Jesus. That is where we get our coaching. We need to... We need to know those things. We have to stay in touch with God. We have to be in his word. That's where we're going to find that information. Next big thought. We have to understand that we are either players, we're spectators, or we're opponents. And we have to choose to inhabit whatever role that we have. Now, obviously, we want to be players. We should want to be players. But there are a lot of people that are spectators that think they're players. Now, you can see this often when you watch football with friends and you're like, you're watching it and you're like, somebody will say, oh, I could have made that pass. And you're like, not likely. I may have said that in the past, but guess what? It's not likely that I would have made that pass because I'm a spectator. I definitely don't want to be an opponent. So what I should strive for is to be a player and to inhabit that role, to make that role mine. What do players have in common? Practice, teamwork, and effort. So... New England Patriots. I know, everybody hates the Patriots. I hate the Patriots too. Seahawks, much better than the Patriots. But anyway, we're gonna park there. As you walk into the Patriots headquarters, the first thing you'll pass is six Super Bowl rings. And then as you go a little further to where the player's entrance is, there are four reminders inscribed in metal posted on the wall at eye level next to the door that leads into the main player's hallway. And those four things that it says is do your job, work hard, be attentive, and put the team first, which I think is fantastic information, fantastic advice for us as Christians. First of all, do your job. Know what God has called you to do and do those things. The Bible is full of references on what God wants us to do. So do those things. Find those things in the word and do those things. The next thing, work hard. You got to put in the effort. Following Jesus is not just a wander or a stroll. It is a march. It is work. It is hard work. We have to put in the effort if we're going to be any good at it. We have to be willing to practice. We have to be willing to dig in when stuff gets hard. And then be attentive. Look for God-given opportunities. All around us, God provides us with opportunities. Look for those. Focus. God, what is it that we're going to do today? How, Lord Jesus, am I going to glorify you as I'm here in traffic? Am I going to be one of those people that's just like keeping pace and making sure somebody doesn't emerge in front of me? Or am I going to show the grace of God that he's shown me and go, yeah, go ahead and move in front of me. An extra millisecond on my commute is not going to make that big of a difference. Easier said than done. I get it. Traffic is horrible. But be attentive. Look for ways that God can use you, whether it's in the line at Costco, whether it's at the gas station, whether it's, you know, whatever the circumstances are, it could be normal, it could be completely abnormal. Be attentive, look for the opportunities that God's given us to work in. And the final one, put the team first. It's about God's goals, not our goals. This includes discipleship, bringing in rookies and showing them the roots, bringing in, bringing in new Christians and saying, this is how we do this. This is why we do things this way. This is what God says about X, Y, and Z. Know your word so that you can instill that in the next generation of people. Help develop crucial skills to the people around us and be available. Make the time. We're all busy. We live in a world of busy. We're up to our necks often in busy. Make the time for other people. 
Make the time, carve it out in your schedule, whether those other people are your children, whether it's your spouse, whether it's coworkers, whether it's neighbors, whether it's somebody that makes you insane, that you can't stand, that you would hate if you weren't a Christian and we're not supposed to hate people. Make the time for those people. God calls us to minister to the people around us. Put the team first. Put God's goals ahead of your own. Remember, God's greatest example of a win was not a massive paycheck. It wasn't championship trophies. It wasn't the World Series. It wasn't business success or winning an election. His greatest example of a win looks like Jesus Christ on the cross, flayed and bloody, choosing to sacrifice himself for the salvation of his people. That's God's greatest example of what a win looks like. We see the same spirit in Esther as she approaches the king in previous chapters, knowing that it could be the end of her life, but she does it for her people. All of us who claim the name of Christians are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's how we're scored. How well did we sacrifice our own time, our own treasure, our own blood for those that God has placed around us? You become a Christian by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You become a great player, a pro, by living like him and giving up your life for the people around you. And we have to choose, and it's indicated by our actions, whether we're going to be pros, amateurs, or hobbyists as we follow Jesus. I pray that we are all professionals, that we really want this. But it's going to be shown by our actions. And on that day, it says in verse 11... Back in Esther chapter 9. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. The trust that the king has here in Esther, where he says, Whatever you ask from me, I'm going to give it to you. Whatever you want that will be done. That trust is built up because Esther has found favor and proven trustworthy. And she says, well, if it's okay with the king, I'm going to paraphrase the next couple of verses here. If that's okay with the king, let us uh, have one more day in the capital here in Susa because there's some other people that we need to root out. And can we take the body of Haman's 10 sons and let them be hung on gallows? And the king says, yeah, go for it. He makes it a law, sends it out. And they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons on the gallows, a visual representation for everybody around there to go, oh, this is what happens when we oppose God's people. But twice in this next section, it says they did not seize any plunder. In verse 15, and again in verse 16, it says they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. Jumping down to verse 20 here. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews of King Ahasuerus provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar every year because those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. This was the month where their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. There to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and sending gifts to one another and to the poor. And the reason it, it outlines in verses 24 and on down through 28 what it is that they're celebrating. 
It says, For Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the poor, that is the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan that Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim from the word poor, because all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them. The Jews bound themselves, and I want you to pay attention. This is verse 27 and 28. This is important. The Jews bound themselves and their descendants and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written and instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, every family, every province, and every city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and in their memory will not fade from their descendants." See, recording big, event, big events like this is important. It's more so for the people who come after us than for ourselves. But think about Christmas. How important, how much do we look forward to Christmas? What does it celebrate? It reminds the entire world of Jesus. We have people that don't have two seconds for Jesus the rest of the year singing Christmas songs and singing Christmas carols and doing Christmas specials and things like that. Because Christmas is that time that we remember. So, Events like this, like Purim, events in Jewish history, it outlays for us a pattern. When we see things that God has done, we need to make note of that. We need to, to let people know. You need to find a way to communicate this to your children, to your grandchildren, to your grandchildren's children, all the way down the line. I just saw on Instagram just today, my brother-in-law posted a picture of five generations in his family. It was his granddaughter, his son, him, his mom, and his great-grandma. So you had five generations of people in one picture. Now, Christmas happened a way long time ago, but what do we know about the generation before us, the generation before them? This information, the things that God has done in their lives that were pivotal, the lessons that they learned, so often those things are forgotten. Find a way to communicate that to your kids, to your grandkids, to your great-grandkids, whatever God avails you, write them down, make a video. Don't leave them to try to, you know, discover it off of, you know, a, a completely cluttered Facebook feed in years in the future. Find a way to communicate those things to them so that they can learn from what we've gone through, so that my kids and my grandkids can learn what God has shown me. What a blessing that is. So here, because this was a massive big event, Haman said, we are going to record this. Esther also wrote a second letter with Haman outlining all these things, saying, we're going to remember this and we're going to celebrate it. Now, how do we remember? How do we celebrate these things? Three words for you, and they all start with R because alliteration is awesome. So first, remember. When we celebrate a moment like this, we need to remember, first of all, what God has done. Bring it to our remembrance. Think about it. Just like with Christmas, remember what happened. Then we need to reflect. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for the world around me? We reflect on that and then we respond. How do I then live in the light of what God has done for me? What actions do I take? How do I choose to, to glorify God knowing what he's done for me? 
And the more times that we have to look back on, not just Christmas, not just Easter, but if you can look back with your kids and say, this is when I was saved and this is what was happening and this is what I learned. This was a pivotal moment in my life. When you make those milestones, in the Bible, they would often make altars. They would set up piles of stones. They would raise what's called an Ebenezer. It's a stone of remembrance. They would make these things like, we're going to remember this. This is going to mark it out. The more of those things that we have the more touch points we have for people, especially the people that we love, to learn from. So before it's gone, write it down, record it, make a note somehow so that you can communicate to the people around you. Maybe take a night, a week, a month, or a year, whatever it is, and just tell your story to your family. Tell your testimony to your children and grandchildren. You think they know it, but I, guess, I guarantee you there's stuff that they have no idea about that they would profit from in their walk with Jesus to learn. Take the time, put the effort in, do that. The importance of looking back on what God has done for us is so important. It's so important for us. It's so important for those who will come after us. So we finish out chapter 9 here where Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote a second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hasuherus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were then written into the record. You'll notice one thing in here, last little point. When we started the book of Esther and we first met Mordecai and we first met Esther, they were on the down low. They were not known as Jews. But now at the end of the chapter, Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen, they are out front. People know who they are, not because they've been running around proclaiming how great it is to be Jewish. No, they know who they are because of their actions, because of their, the way that they lived, because of the God that they served, and because how they served him was so evident in their lives, they took on that name. We bear the name of Christ. We are called Christians. People should know that through how we live. So read your Bible, please, people. Read your Bible, find out what God wants from us, and live that way. If we can do that together, we will change this world, and we will have a win in God's eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be able, Father God, to spend the time with you, to grow close to you, to become more like you, Jesus, and Lord, forgive us where we fall short. Forgive us where instead of following you and what you've called us to do, Lord, we stray off into our own goals and our own, our own priorities. Forgive us when we do that, Lord. Bring us close back to you. Give us opportunities to serve you. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your example. And thank you for the word, Lord, which will show us what we need to know about you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.